All those in favor of releasing a new episode, raise your hand and say aye. Aye. What a great voting system we have. This is the Phantasmagorical Think Tank. What are we talking about today, Scott? Today we're going to be talking about different democratic voting systems and Arrow's impossibility theorem. So democracy might seem like a pretty straightforward thing. Everybody votes for, say, a candidate or a law, and the one that gets voted for the most is the one that everybody has to obey. But what if I told you that there are actually many different kinds of democratic systems, many different ways of counting the vote, and that there are many different perfectly reasonably sounding systems that can lead to totally different candidates winning the election. So even though there are a ton of different voting systems or variants of voting systems that we might mention here, we're going to, without examples, simply just go over a couple of them, including plurality, single transferable vote, the Condorcet system, and finally, order count vote. But then, as soon as we bring up these wonderful sounding systems, we're going to smash your dreams by pointing out that they all have different flaws, and this frustration with democratic systems having inherent flaws will lead us to our discussion on Arrow's impossibility theorem. In a sense, this is going to be a rather nihilistic episode, and we're going to comment on the imperfections of any democratic society. So without further ado, let's start off with something you're probably familiar with, plurality voting. It's the most straightforward and simplistic kind of voting. Everybody puts an X on their favorite candidate on their ballot, and then the candidate with the most Xs wins. It's simple, it's direct, it's easiest for the vote counters to count. Everybody can understand it. In fact, it's the system that the U.S. has, and probably the oldest and most popular, in my estimation, citation needed. So, Scott, what's wrong with this system? It seems pretty straightforward and fair. Everyone gets to have a say, and then your voice counts just as much as anybody else's, and you get to vote for whoever you want, right? Yeah, I mean, all of these things that you've just listed are good, but there are a lot of issues lurking just underneath the surface. For example, it inevitably collapses into just two options rather than having a wide variety of options. This uh, pretty direct, straightforward kind of voting ends up having a lot of dissatisfaction when there are more than two options. Like, imagine a nation that has 11 different political parties. The first 10 parties each have 9% of the populace, so that makes up 90%. But then this 11th party has 10% of the, the population at its side. And so when everybody puts an X on their favorite party, the winner is the 11th party because it has the highest percent, 10%, compared to everybody else's 9%. And so everybody now has to live under the jurisdiction of this 11th party. But hold on, that seems heinously unfair. That's... Like we said, it's only 10% of the populace. Only 1 in 10 people are satisfied. 9 out of 10 people are dissatisfied with the laws. What sort of society is this where 9 out of 10 people are frustrated? So if this is the kind of thing that plurality voting allows, surely that's a pretty significant flaw. It allows for very low satisfaction to happen, and this low satisfaction goes unchallenged. Another thing that can arise is, as Scott previously mentioned, a two-party system, because now all of these 90% of the population are thinking, oh, I don't want to keep being on the losing side. If I join with someone who has similar views to me, then we can beat that 10% of 
18% or so on. Or in a different context, let's say there's three parties, the blue party, the red party, and the orange party. The red party and the orange party have closer views than the orange party and the red party. The red party has 35% of the vote and the orange party has 25% of the vote, which leaves 40% for the blue party. So under a plurality system, the blue party wins. The orange party then thinking, wait, I'm always going to lose, plus I'm at the bottom, like no matter what, will then start voting until they win because they kind of say, I agree with more so with the red candidate than I do with the blue candidate. Before you know it, there is no orange party. 60% of the vote is for the red candidate, and 40% of the vote is for the blue candidate, thus letting the red candidate win, but completely demolishing any third party. Yeah, it's what's called strategic voting, where you're sort of caught between a rock and a hard place. The situation is basically telling you, you can vote for the candidate you want, and your least favorite candidate will win. Or you can lie and say that your second favorite candidate is your first favorite candidate, and then your second favorite candidate will win. It seems kind of frustrating that you have to either lie or have your worst candidate win. What sort of a just system is this? And to add some real-world context, in the U.S., an article by The Guardian found that 61% of Americans say neither political party reflects their opinions today. And an article by CNN found that 40% of Americans think that a third political party is needed to fix the political system. Let's just pause and appreciate that. Like, 61%, more than half of the society, isn't satisfied with what's going on. And remember, the whole point of the plurality, and in fact, the whole point of democratic society in the first place is to choose the candidate that is most wanted by society. So clearly this is a failure if it's not giving a society that most people want to live in. So Matt, it seems that the most direct and straightforward method, that is plurality, is a little bit antiquated. What are some proposed solutions or more sophisticated ways of counting the votes that might solve these issues? More sophisticated ways are ranking systems, really. It's not so much that you have multiple votes. It's not like you get to just vote for whoever you want. It's that you say, I like this person first. And then if this person doesn't win, I want this person to win or I would rather have this person. So a more specific example of this is, as I mentioned before, single transferable voting, where let's say you have four candidates. I give each candidate a number one through four, one being my favorite choice, four being my least favorite. I don't want them to win in, under any circumstance. Then everybody casts in a ballot just like this. And we see, looking at just the number ones, who got the most votes in the first round. Then we say, okay, well, one person out of all four of them likely got the least. So that person is eliminated, and everybody who put that person for their number one suddenly gets their vote transferred to their number two choice. Let's say there's four political parties, pink, red, orange, and blue. And let's say blue only gets 6% of the you know, first place votes. Only 6% of people said, I rank blue as number one. Blue is then thrown out of the race, and everybody who voted for blue has their second place votes chosen instead. So let's say half of the people who voted for blue put number two as red and half of them put number two as orange. Then those votes get added on as 3% more for red and 3% more for orange. So in this way, little by little, people's preferences are transferred to whoever they would rather have 
under the circumstance that the person they want most doesn't win. And a pro of this is it allows people to vote for third parties and say, you know, maybe more, a lot of people will vote for the third party like me. I don't have to put all my money. I'm not putting all of my money on this one horse. And it's not like my vote is thrown away if I vote for a third party, because then my second choice, if the third party loses, will just go to maybe another third party or one of the bigger parties. Yeah, to provide a real world example, like uh, maybe your politics align with the Green Party mostly, uh, but you know because the Green Party, even in it, in its most popular states, usually gets something like 2% of the vote. In our current system, there's almost a joke about uh, voting for third party candidates, like voting for the Green Party is almost tantamount to throwing your vote away, if I may be like direct and slightly vituperative. But in this situation, you could just put the Green Party as number one, and then the Democratic Party, which is uh, similar to the Green Party, as number two. So that way, when Green Party only gets 2% of the votes, well, by all means, no worries, because then your vote is transferred over to the Democratic Party. So you're not throwing your vote away. You're just saying, this is what I truly prefer. And that allows people to pull away from the two-party system and actually encourages more so you might be thinking well i'm still not going to get the person i want because it's a third party but if everyone's you know ranking in a different way it could shift anyway yeah like as we already said 60 percent uh, wish the parties were different 47 percent wish there was a third party so by all means i would imagine after several elections after we sort of get used to it there would be more than one party popping up like um in New Zealand, I think they they have something similar, and they have eight different political parties. What's interesting here is that it kind of forces us to ask the question about what is the best candidate, because maybe the candidate who wins doesn't have the majority vote, and he's nobody's majority first choice, or perhaps even nobody's first choice at all, but he or she is still the generally best candidate that everybody is kind of okay with and like the net utility is generally the highest am i making sense yeah like uh, imagine if there's a bunch of polarizing candidates and one candidate who's better off or more in the middle and believes both sides a little better they have a better chance because the polarizing candidates might get thrown out one way or another and then votes may get shifted to this person who is people's second choice because the other candidate's also really polarizing. Yeah, exactly. I think there's something really sweet about having a candidate where even if not the majority put him or her as number one, it's still the candidate where everybody is kind of okay with. Because there's a difference between asking, did your number one candidate win? And did a candidate who you are okay with win? Are you still happy with the way the election turned out, even though it wasn't ideal? So this might seem like a great solution to plurality voting, but the issue is that single transferable vote or elimination voting, as it's also called, has its own host of problems. For example, imagine in this political spectrum, 49% of the voter populace are far extreme leftists and the other 49% are far extreme rightists. Is rightist a word? But right in the center with 2% of the vote is this handy dandy nice compromise candidate. It seems intuitive that the highest utility would be promoted by choosing the center guy because he's the guy that everybody is kind of okay with. But the issue with elimination voting is since it starts by eliminating the bottom candidate, 
the compromise candidate, who I think we can agree is the best, would be the first to be eliminated, and then one of the polarized candidates wins. Another phenomenon that's even more counterintuitive and is honestly kind of detrimental is that it violates the principle of unanimity. Now, to be perfectly honest, I don't fully understand this myself because I don't formally study decision theory, but there's this bizarre phenomenon where in elimination voting, having individual voters change their mind and start rating a certain candidate higher on their list can actually cause that candidate to be lower on the overall ratings. And in fact, in situations where the nation can only choose one candidate, having individual voters rate this candidate higher on their list can actually turn that candidate's victory into a loss. And that just seems nonsensical. Like, how can it be that getting worse votes makes this candidate win the election, but better votes make it lose? And as impossible as that sounds, it, there genuinely are hypothetical examples where that can occur. And if you don't believe me, we'll definitely link uh, lectures and short videos in our description of this podcast so that you can see for yourself. Well, even though I personally have an affinity for elimination voting, I think it's elegant, it's beautiful, it's fun, it's imperfect. What's another voting system that we could turn to, Matt? Uh, another one is still a ranking system, but different in some regards, the Condorcet system, uh, where you set up your ballot and it's ranked just like previously, but when it's being counted, it's not count majority, go count majority, next round, count majority, next round. It's let's look at everybody's ballot, or let's say it's person A, B, C, D, E, F. They say, okay, let's pit A against B and see how people ranked A against B. Did more people rank A above B or B above A? Not even just putting any value on the ranking, just straight up, did people put A above B? Yes, that's a point A. Did people put B above A? Yes, that's a point B. Yeah, I think the Condorcet criterion can be summarized as if a certain candidate would win against every other candidate had it been just a one-on-one -on -one election, then that should be the candidate who wins. Yeah. You repeat this system of one-on-one -on -one for every combination of candidates. Yeah, what's really nice about that is you get a genuine idea of how the voters would have voted had that candidate not been in the election. In fact, I actually had a frustrating experience in the primaries earlier this year in 2020. I submitted my ballot for the real-life election, and then the next, like, day, that candidate dropped out of the race. So essentially, my ballot became completely meaningless. I was like, whoa, gee, great. My, my first participation in the democratic process, my vote was <laughs> completely discarded. That really, that, that really puts, puts faith into the system. <laughs> so the beauty with Condorcet is that instead of just putting a bubble, I would have fully ranked all the candidates. So ideally the outcome of the election is independent of people jumping in or exiting. It's known as the criterion of the independence of irrelevant alternatives. So this too may seem like a pretty good system, but it also has its own flaws, including sometimes it just doesn't give a winner, <laughs> which is kind of important when you <laughs> to vote and make a decision. Imagine if in the presidential election, the answer was the winner is 
no one in particular. <laughs> so this may seem counterintuitive, but it is possible, and it has been shown that with this ranking system, you could have a system where, let's say, once again, it's just A, B, and C, or let's call them rock, paper, and scissor. Rock beats scissor, paper beats rock, and scissor beats paper. What's also funky is that even though no individual vote put the candidates in a cycle, the combined vote of all the citizens as a whole is in a cycle. Our brains tend to commit what's called the fallacy of composition, where we say, well, every individual element within a set has a property, therefore the set itself has that property. But there are a lot of counterexamples, one of which being this exact situation. Where every single part of it has a winner, where one looks better than the other, but the system as a whole doesn't necessarily have a winner. Exactly. And also, I think you can agree that, like, it would be irrational to have your preferences in a cycle. Like, how can I like uh, pizza more than burgers and burgers more than fries, but fries more than pizza? That doesn't make any sense. So even though each voter is rational the group is irrational. And even though the group is irrational, each citizen in the group is perfectly rational. That's bizarre, ain't it? Yeah. So big takeaways from the Condorcet system. In the concept, the Condorcet criterion makes a lot of sense and seems intuitive, but in practice, the way it's implemented is fallible. Mm -hmm. Let us move on now to a different kind of voting known as the Borda count. What is the Borda count, and how is it different than anything we've discussed up until this point? The Borda count is, more generally put, a, a numbering system where instead of just saying, these are the relative places where I would put these candidates, you actually give a quantifiable value to the candidates where you say, like, oh, I think this candidate is 10 out of 10. And I think this candidate is a 3 out of 10. And I think this candidate is like a 0 out of 10. And then each of those points gets added up and creates its own value. And I should also say, uh, as with all of these groups, there isn't just one kind of board account in the same way. There's not just one kind of elimination voting or one kind of Condorcet. Rather, it's a family of styles of vote. In a sense, it's like an approach more than a specific method. So this seems nice, this board account, because maybe you like candidate A way more than B, but B only a little bit more than C. With board account, you can say 10 for A, 2 for B, 1 for C, and really express the gradations of passion and desire. But with Condorcet, it would just be A1, B2, C3, and you really wouldn't get that nuance. So you're saying that the precision I'm adding is a pro to this count system, right? On the surface level, yes. But you can imagine, listener, we're about to share some criticisms of this seemingly elegant, seemingly lovely system. Well, where could it go wrong? How could, how could this exacerbate something that the ranking system didn't just by adding numbers to it? Well, remember how at the beginning we talked about strategic voting? It's back again. Oh, no. <laughs> the issue with board account is that it is highly vulnerable to strategic voting, as with plurality. For example, 
even if your genuine preferences are like seven out of 10 for one candidate and three out of 10 for the other, you know, just from a purely pragmatic standpoint that giving three points to a candidate that you actually don't want isn't really in your best interest. So you might just put 10 for the candidate you want more and zero for the candidate you want less. Simply put zero for every other candidate. Oh, very much. Yeah. Any number you give them is giving them a a closer edge to beating the candidate you really want. Yeah, and also imagine how frustrating it would be if a candidate won because of points that people who didn't like the candidate gave them because they said, yeah, 3 out of 10, or yeah, 2 out of 10. And so just from a pragmatic perspective, it encourages people to be dishonest about their genuine true preferences. And on top of that, it ultimately just collapsed back into plurality. Because if you put 10 for the candidate you want most and zero for everything else, well, now we're right back to where we started, where people just put an X or a bubble on their number one and that's it. And I want to just be extra clear, like, not all board accounts are from one to 10. Like, I know of one system where the maximum number of points you can give is the number of candidates in the election. Like, if there are five candidates, then... The highest points you can give is five, and so on and so forth. But again, it poses the question, why bother bubbling in any points for the candidates you don't want? And I think some of them are also relatively close to a ranking system, where it's like, the let's say there are five candidates, the person who you pick for number one is like automatically given five points for being first in the rank that you uh, associate with it. On that note, we should probably stress that all of these methods have the potential to give different winners even if the ballots are exactly the same what's changing is not how people are voting what's changing is how we're counting the votes and a different person wins because of that so that should pose some interesting questions about like the nature of justice and fairness like what is the best candidate what's the most fair candidate what's the optimal candidate and what criteria are we using and why those criteria I, w I would like to add, though, that this doesn't necessarily mean that you should arbitrarily pick them because it's about counting the votes and not how people like not what people are preferring. I mean, obviously, there are some such as we mentioned, the board account just basically leads to a two party system and same problems as plurality. So these are also things to consider in how the effect of how you're counting the votes affects the political system as a whole. You do speak the truth. And not just the election in that instant, but elections later down the line. Yeah. So we've discussed a very brief uh, precursory crash course into four basic ideologies of voting. But Matt, you know what would really suit me? If we could find some perfect voting system. Like, I'm imagining these five really important criteria in my mind. Why can't we just find a, a voting system that fulfills all five of them? Well, that brings us to our second part, Arrow's Impossibility Theorem. So throughout this conversation, we've mentioned various criteria, and we've realized that if a voting system lacks a certain criterion, then that voting system seems horribly unjust. Like, we talked about how important it is to have, like, the principle of unanimity. I really liked that one about the independence of irrelevant alternatives. That seems like essential. Obviously, like non-dictatorship, that just goes without saying. I really liked having more than two candidates, as we talked about with the real-life data. And finally, in order to avoid strategic voting, let's have ranked voting. So those are the five criteria I have in my mind. Like, I'm imagining any voting system 
that doesn't have all five of these would have to be an unjust in one way or another. So like, Matt, tell me, how many voting systems are out there that fulfill all five of the criteria that I just talked about? Uh, it's quite literally impossible. What? In Arrow's impossibility theorem. It's true. I pulled a fast one on you, audience. It is literally, like, logically impossible to have any voting system fulfill all five of those criteria all at once. Matt, just to refresh the audience's mind, do you want to go back through these and really investigate what they mean and just how dissatisfying Arrow's impossibility theorem is? Yeah. I'll start us off with probably one of the most important and I think everyone would agree essential to a democracy, non-dictatorship, which simply states there is more than one person whose vote matters. Not more than one person voting. Everyone can cast a ballot. But if we just say, well, Jeffrey here is the only ballot that matters, that's a dictatorship. So the second one is more than two candidates. Uh, as we already stated, in real life, 61% of Americans think that the current two-party system doesn't reflect their opinions. Nearly 40% wish there's a third party. So the more than two candidates criteria on exists not out of some like metaphysical obligation, but just because in real life, this is the kind of system that humans want. It's the kind of system that addresses the specifics of all the different cultures and opinions that exist in such a gargantuan country such as the US. And I think we might add on our own little tack of saying, like viable candidates, like sure, in the US, there are technically other parties, but we mean like, in such a way that your vote actually like the candidates are viable candidates that have some sort of chance of winning and are just quite literally there. Oh, yeah, I think that's a great point. Like candidates that actually have some reasonable chance of winning rather than just the illusion of more than two options. Yeah. Which brings us to our third point. This impossibility theorem only works with ranking systems. So we're calling out plurality and board account systems because they don't fall under the ranking systems like those we mentioned, such as Condorcet or STV. Now for the last two, we're going to get into some more complex ones. We mentioned unanimity. So the principle of unanimity is if everybody prefers A over B, then the final results place A above B. Like, imagine just how unjust it would be if 100% of the voters agreed that chocolate is better than vanilla, but then when the overall results are published, we see that vanilla is ranked above chocolate in the competition between chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry. That just seems like nonsense. Yeah, it's almost like there's a logical mm -hmm. progression in the rank, and the rank actually has some sort of real meaning. Yeah, like any system that violates unanimity would be objectively suboptimal in its satisfaction because there would have to be some other candidate which everybody would be more happy with. And finally, we get to our final criterion, the independence of irrelevant alternatives. Basically saying, if we were to introduce or remove a candidate from the race, this should not affect the preference of people and how they ranked the order. I mean, since the order is quite literally a ranking system, if my number one candidate is thrown out, I shouldn't suddenly say, well, I think my number four candidate is actually number one. I should say, well, I already had everything as two, three, four, five. So regardless, that order should stay because that's what I genuinely believe, regardless of whether or not candidate one, my first choice stays in. Or alternatively, 
if I throw in another candidate, whatever, I, I will put them into a place and they will separate the list as I have it now in, in the ordered rankings. But I'm not going to just totally scramble what I had before simply because one new person is added. I'm going to put them where I prefer them between candidate three and candidate four. And to be extra precise, we're not just talking about individual preferences, but group preferences. Like uh, in the case of ice cream flavors, if the group preference is chocolate over vanilla and we introduce uh, strawberry as a third option, sure, strawberry might be number one, number two, or number three, but it shouldn't make the group preference of chocolate over vanilla suddenly switch. That would be ridiculous. Why should the presence or absence of strawberry being in the race affect whether or not the group likes chocolate over vanilla. In fact, that is possible in some voting systems where even if no individual voter flips its preference of chocolate over vanilla, the way the voting method counts votes, the group preference between chocolate and vanilla will flip. And that just seems nonsense, which is why it's on our list of like criteria we have to have in order to have a just voting system. So I mentioned that this episode was going to be kind of nihilistic because now it's time for us to mourn the loss of the perfect voting system which never existed in the first place. Like, let us just pause and think about just how frustrating it is that all five of these criteria seem perfectly reasonable. Like, no voting system could possibly be just without it, and yet any voting system has to be without at least one. All voting systems must be unjust by at least one metric. That's frustrating. Now, that's not to say that there aren't clearly some better than others. Oh, very much, very much. The criterion. Absolutely. But. Plurality, I'm looking at you. <laughs> and it doesn't mean we shouldn't, uh, yeah, like looking at plurality say, mm-hmm. hey, maybe we should change our system to be one of these better ones. We shouldn't also ask for an ideal system that doesn't exist. Yeah, I guess the the moral of the story is not to be idealistic, but rather make the most of what we have and realize that even though no system is perfect, we still can improve ourselves objectively. Yeah. Finishing it off, we just want to make it very clear that this is not some pseudoscience, some, oh, well, how can you possibly say this unless you try every single possibility? The guy who created this theorem, Kenneth Arrow, actually did logical proofs to prove that his theorem was true. His proof was in his doctoral thesis in 1951 and is well recognized, even winning him a Nobel Prize for this exact theorem. So don't just take our word for it. Take the word of a Nobel Prize winning economist. Do you have any uh, emotions or final thoughts on this? I mean, right off the bat, it's kind of sad because like, oh, wow, we have the worst of the systems. <laughs> the only way it could be worse was if we had a dictatorship, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think we miss an, a hot number of these criterions. But on the bright side, we at least know ways to improve it. And some of these make quite a bit of sense. Yeah, like we established that all systems must fail at least one criteria. But that doesn't change the fact that plurality, I think it feels like... I, I want to say, like, most of these criteria, it is, like, the fact of the matter that we can start fulfilling some of these criteria without giving up others. We won't be able to finish that process, but we can at least start it. Yeah. I think that was a good episode. All those in favor of declaring that to be a good episode, raise your hand and say, aye. Uh, can I rank it against the other episodes? <laughs> You know, maybe just like put it on a scale of 1 to 10. Mm, so many ways to compare this episode to the other episodes. 
Yeah, I wonder if there's an ideal way to do that. But until next time, this has been the Phantasmagorical Think Tank.